everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown Number 79. Sam Peckinpah's 1969 classic, The Wild Bunch. <laughs> I'm so glad that you handle that with all of these because, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm sure I would find a way to trip over my own tongue if I had to deliver that every single one of these episodes. Oh, stop it. You know, you're a, you're a master orator, Matt. I mean, you're the only one who's done this solo, a solo podcast <laughs> a couple times before, and that's impressive. I certainly couldn't do that. So. Well, what people don't realize is that I'm actually over here live editing the uh, accompanying YouTube you know, live stream of these podcast episodes. And in the last uh, 30 seconds, I've actually cut to uh, 75 different angles. Oh, so wow. Just in honor of Mr. Peckinpah. Sped up time, slowed down time, uh, cutting between. It's great stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I'll never post these, of course. But yeah, what people don't realize is that we actually have a live stream, a video live stream of every single episode. We could, I mean, we could actually start that, Matt. <laughs> get get sure. a little more popular for us, but we, we could start that. We could do it. Or we should, maybe we should do it over Twitch. We should start Twitch streaming our podcast. Does that make sense? I have no idea what that is, and I don't want to learn what it is. No, it's 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 not as uh, lewd as it maybe sounds to you. It's a it's a video game streaming website. So, oh, okay. That's what that's or. what like uh, PewDiePie and those guys use. <laughs> yes, like PewDiePie. Sure. Okay. Um, all right. Well, the Wild Bunch, Matt. Um, you are a Western connoisseur. You have, in fact, made a feature-length Western film. So this is right up your alley. Maybe not a film that is sort of just well-known among the general public. Um, I, I presume if you were, you know, an adult when this movie came out, you remember it being controversial. But this is in the pantheon of all-time great Western movies. And uh, would you like to just sort of explain a little bit about why that is? Yeah, this is a big one for me. You know, obviously, I'm no expert in Westerns, but I'm certainly passionate about them. This one is, is pretty important to me, at least in terms of the American Westerns. And it's significant because of its editorial style. And it's also significant because of its violence. But I think it's especially significant as being kind of like the spiritual predecessor to Unforgiven. Mm -hmm. um, I really think these are the two films that work to, and we will get we'll get to talking about Unforgiven here relatively soon. I think right in the next ten fifteen movies, I think Unforgiven is going to pop up. Eleven away. That's a Eleven. Perfect. Um, yeah, I really think that like this in the same way that like. Uh, L.A. Confidential is kind of like the spiritual successor to Chinatown, for example. Mm -hmm. I think that Unforgiven is the natural progression from this in terms of uh, sort of like demythologizing the myth of the American West. Sure. And this is really Sam Peckinpah working at the height of his powers, attempting to make a, a Vietnam War allegory right smack dab in the middle of, of the Vietnam War, probably right at the most controversial and bloody part of that war, right? I think 1968 is about the height of bloodshed and loss of life for Amer American soldiers, at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, reading up, it sounded like he was sort of off-put by how much violence people were just seeing on the news on a day-to-day -day basis and the fact that it was still sort of taboo to show extreme violence in, you know, <laughs> in film sort of rankled uh, Peckinpah. And, and uh, again, I'm no historian, but Peckinpah was a uh, irascible 
often rage-fueled, sort of iconoclastic guy. Yeah. And uh, this is sort of the big pivot point for him. Like, this is where he had as much to prove as anything else. He had been relegated from film to TV and was making a, you know, a valiant return to film. And, he, you know, he was, he was probably more focused on doing something great here than he had ever had been in his career. I think you're exactly on the right track there. And uh, I don't think he ever, I mean, maybe Peckinpah historians who are certainly more learned than I am might disagree with this, but I don't think he ever made a film this good again. I really think that this is kind of his his magnum opus in a lot of ways. And like you said, he had he had a lot to prove. He really, really wanted to get back into feature filmmaking after having, like you said, been relegated to television work. And here he basically is working in an environment, you know, like he the, the kind of subject matter he wants to cover and the way he wants to cover it can only be made in this format. And honestly, it pushes the bounds of what the format was, what was even allowed in the format at the time, because mm-hmm. it is because of the extreme amounts of violence and honestly, sexual content as well. Yeah. And just how anti these antiheroes really are. I mean, these guys do some some truly reprehensible things. And the movie is like unblinking in terms of how it's willing to portray them. And this movie was made at a perfect time where basically the MPAA was um, was moving from, I think, sort of like the, you know, the Hayes Code or the Production Code to actual MPAA uh, delegations of mm-hmm. G, P, G, R. So the fact that this movie was rated R because the R rating had basically just been introduced meant that the film could be released in its sort of quote-unquote uncut version right yeah like if there hadn't if there had not been an r rating to warn people about the content they would have definitely had to um neuter this thing yeah because they wouldn't have been able to they wouldn't have been allowed to release it in the form that it eventually was just just moving forward for a second like there's a bizarre little twist here when they re-released the director's cut like 25 years later it went from an r to an nc-17 um which is pretty inexplicable because all the added footage was none of the added footage was like racy or violent or had sexual overtones or anything i, I don't know why that it ended up happening i tried to do a little research it seemed kind of kind of baffling because it doesn't seem like an nc-17 cup of movie either i mean by today's standards yeah it, it, there's a lot of shootouts and there's some blood but it's not like it's not crazy. It's hard to get into that mindset of, I guess, revolutionary or how just sort of shocking this would have been. I think a lot of it might have to do with the fact that so many sequences in the movies involve children, basically, uh, not necessarily subjected to violence, but the movie makes a point of children being in the crossfire, if you will. Yeah. Like children are, he spends a lot of time doing these crazy zooms to make a point that there's children present during these huge shootouts. And I think there is even a time when a when a little girl gets gets shot, right? Am I have I have I projected? No, no, there's something? a couple of kids yeah getting shot in this movie and you know I think this is the sort of Vietnam War allegory and the point being that you know when you desensitize a younger generation to violence, they're going to be more prone to violence as they age, right? And so it's, a, it's just a bad bad cycle to go through in the the lawless west. Uh, on the cusp of uh, what World War One, basically here. Yeah, that's very significant. That it, it's a Western, but it's a Western that takes place in the 20th century. I think I don't think a lot of people realize that who haven't seen the film. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of the the later westerns you'll you'll ever see on the you know there's there's cars in it and they talk and they're sort of aware of the fact that times are changing and horses are not going to be what they used to be and you know their whole sort of way of life and their code may be. Uh, fading away into the sunset right yeah there's some there the movie has a certain sort of self-awareness that's like right on the verge of being almost winking yes you know like william holden's character 
even says on occasion like our our time is over or things are changing or there's going to be no place for us like he's basically saying in so many words the mythology of the west that we've come up in is over Mm -hmm. the movie's very much about the death of that really even like the last action sequence is like a literalizing it's like killing off (laughs) the idea of of the um of the mythological sort of like western archetypes yeah a a suicide mission uh taking everything down with you as as you go right yeah in dramatic in incredibly dramatic and ostentatious (laughs) fashion i mean this is one of the all-time great climactic shootouts Mm -hmm. and it it goes over the top to a ridiculous degree i mean this this i I would hold this up with you know anything that you know john woo or or michael bay are doing in the last 20 years yeah and there are a couple sequences just like that too that are just i mean there's there's at least three just big time shootout sequences that are probably as good as anything you'll see in a western they are a bit over the top but the fact that there's real bloodshed and the body count is is extremely high um you know it, it doesn't uh, it it doesn't seem sort of joking or farcical right like it's it's all it's all very grounded in this sort of nihilistic uh you know worldview that it has and you can't overstate how groundbreaking the experimental editorial approach is we 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 explain to people what what that actually means and what the breakthroughs sort of sort of were uh, with Peckinpah here? Yeah, basically Peckinpah working with this very, you know, he was trying to do something revolutionary here in terms of like not just messing with sort of like temporality and the elongated moment, but also with, you know, portraying violence in a, in a very specific visceral kind of way that it hadn't been portrayed before. So he's working with this young editor, I want to say uh, Lou Lombardo is his name. Sounds right. And basically he, he handpicked this kid because he wanted somebody, not necessarily somebody he could push around, but somebody who would be willing to experience experiment and somebody who would be loyal to Peckinpah, who wouldn't be like, you know, calling the studio every couple days, you know, mm-hmm. telling on, you know, because they, they edited the whole thing in Mexico. They shot it in Mexico and then they spent another six months after production editing in Mexico. And I have to imagine that was intentional on Peckinpah's part because he wanted to be as far away from studio meddling as possible. Yeah. And so the idea was we're going to, we're going to like cover the hell out of all of these action sequences. He shot three major ac- action sequences with six cameras and he would shoot each camera with a different uh, frame rate. So you'd have your regular, you know, 24 frames per second, you know, quote unquote, normal speed. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have 30 frames per second. You'd have 60 frames per second. You'd have 90 frames per second. You'd have, I think up at that point, anamorphic Panavision cameras could go up to 120 frames per second. Nowadays, we have, you know, crazy sophisticated phantom cameras that'll, I mean, they're digital, but they're they're technically uh, the equivalent of like a thousand frames per second. So you know when you see those when you see those videos of like hummingbirds in slow motion or whatever, that's like a thousand frames per second. But at the time, 120 frames per second was pretty revolutionary. And so he would overcover each of these moments in this action sequence so that he could potentially cut between different angles of the same, you know, of the same uh, gunshot or of the same fall or of this, you know, the same like horse collision or whatever. And then he'd be able to cut between (laughs) different speeds of those various events. Yeah. And the effect is is overwhelmingly cinematic. I mean, it's something we're relatively used to nowadays because so many people pick this up and because obviously it's it's become, you know, in vogue, de rigueur, you know. I mean, yeah, it's part of the action movie language at this point. Exactly. For anyone similar. But at the time, it must people it must have just been blowing people's minds. In, in for better or for worse, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were completely repelled by it, right? I assume, you know, it, it made money at the box office, but it didn't, like, make insane money. I think it made, like, 
$25 million, which was a lot, obviously, in 1969, but not, you know, record-setting by any stretch of the imagination. However, it was, I, a, it was a hit. It was, it was a, hit. a hit, and it was nominated for Oscars. But I imagine it was the same experience as seeing, like, the coolest new action movie in, in the theaters back then, right? Like, this had to have seemed, like, so visceral and, and, and sort of akin to what, you know, whoever wants to see the big, big tentpole releases, you know, your Avengers or whatever, your Star Wars, that had to seem to the audiences uh, like this was this was something completely new and fresh and, and kind of crazy, right? Yeah, especially because it was dealing with a genre that at the time probably still would have seemed relatively quaint, right? Yeah. I mean, this is in 1969, so it's, you know, it's not like the Western is, is dead. And we could talk a little more about contextually what was going on with that genre in 1969, which is really fascinating. It must have been crazy to think that like it's this hardcore, violent, explicit Vietnam War allegory that's being injected into this very quaint American genre, something that's associated very much with films that the entire family can watch together. Why don't we contextualize that a little bit? I mean, one of the things, they, they wanted to rush this out and sort of try to beat Butch Cassidy to theaters because yes. they felt it was uh, had had some similar themes and, and plot points and uh, you know we talked about the sort of <laughs> suicide ending kind of similar to to butch casting the sundance kid to give us a little bit of context here 1969 the highest grossing film of the year butch casting the sundance kid second highest grossing midnight cowboy which went on to win best picture obviously a much different type of western if you even want to consider it part of the genre three would be easy rider which obviously incredibly influential and actually features a lot of a very similar sort of editorial flourishes mm-hmm Paint Your Wagon is number six, a movie I have a lot of opinions about. That's the movie that Lee Marvin actually made when he turned down the William Holden role in yep. The Wild Bunch. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, another, I think, uh, sort of groundbreaking action film uh, made on the other side of the pond. And then The Wild Bunch is the 19th highest grossing film of 1969. Uh, and Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, number the 28th highest grossing film of 1969. So basically this is coming after Sergio Leone has already kind of like broken through and really like kicked the doors open of the genre, right? Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, he's still, I think he still shot uh, Once Upon a Time in the West in Europe, but it obviously features all these, you know, you know, American actors like Henry Fonda. Needless to say, there was a lot going on with this genre in 1969, and there's a lot of crazy, like, experimentation happening. So let me ask you this as, as more of a historian than, than I am here. So a movie like The Wild Bunch comes along and basically sort of tears down what we know to be the Western, right? This... Like you said, family friendly. Oftentimes, I mean, you know, Sergio Leone comes in and has a little different take on it, of course. But does this, as we go forward past 1969, do people look at the genre and say, "Shit, like we can't go back to where we were before"? Like we, we the Western has changed completely, and, and what were the implications of? I guess specifically the Wild Bunch. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that action filmmaking changes for sure. You can definitely see influences of the Wild Bunch, and you know, maybe something like the French Connection, which comes two years later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then even Peckinpah would make you know the other film that he's probably most famous for, which was Straw Dogs in 1971. 1971 was a big year for violent movies. <laughs> yeah. You got Straw Dogs, you got French Connection, you got A Clockwork Orange. 
yeah. amongst others in 1971. Uh, ironically, the Oscars start going the other direction and they start like really focusing on quaint musicals, you know, like My Fair Lady or <laughs> Sound of Music, Oliver or whatever. But you basically got the American New Wave coming along and the directors like Peckinpah or William Friedkin uh, attempting to sort of like push the boundaries of what's acceptable. So, but in terms of the Western, yeah, I don't think things ever would be the same again. I think, I think Sergio Leone and his his spaghetti western revolution and then peck and paws you know really butch casting the Sundance kid the wild bunch coming out the same year i think that changes westerns forever for, for the for the better as far as i'm concerned westerns are, are allowed to be more philosophical more existential after 1969 this movie obviously you know the editing's very important it's filmed pretty beautifully there's a lot of uh deep focus right like that that's that's what he's like it's 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 extremely cinematic in any way you could you could hope for but like let's talk about the narrative a little bit because i think that's super important as well and you you know you you briefly mentioned the anti-hero stuff but it's very amorphous the the line between good and bad guys and who you should be rooting for and who you shouldn't be rooting for and just sort of the uh the motivations are even sort of not like explicitly clear um in terms of like <laughs> what they're looking to get from some of this stuff like they all seem very world weary and tired and <laughs> just like barely hanging on was that revolutionary at all was that something that that was was different about the western uh in terms of the wild bunch i think so yeah i, I think that that type, i mean it's not like anti it's not like this movie invented anti-heroes but i really think it pushes the idea of the anti-hero or like you said blurring the line between what constitutes you know the hero Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot to mention uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which came out in 1971 as well, which I think is another really revolutionary yeah. Western that like completely changes the way we look at the genre or, you know, other things that Clint Eastwood started doing in the 1970s, the outlaw Josie Wales, which of course is a classic uh, anti-hero. But what's interesting about the Wild Bunch is how it basically pits two, it gives you like both sides of the coin, right? Like it gives you William Holden's character and his Wild Bunch, but it also gives you Robert Ryan's character who used to be part of this posse. And he's basically been conscripted by the railroad to go after his old friends. You get to kind of like look at this existential struggle from both sides, right? Yeah, I mean, you could even have this movie where the perspective was shifted one way or the other and have them both be like, you could root for either side if it was focused on one or the other. Yes. You could see that happening. And I think that something that Robert Ryan does, which is really interesting and really effective, is it's clear from his portrayal that like he thinks he's the hero of this movie, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. absolutely. He, I mean, the movie spends a lot of time with him, and it gives him a lot of you know, it gives him a lot of flashbacks. And he's, I mean, he's an incredible performance. And if you read about his relationship with Peck and Pa, uh, Robert Ryan was a, a big movie star at the time. Maybe not necessarily a bigger movie star than William Holden, but Robert Ryan really thought he deserved to have top billing in this film. Huh. And so you can tell that the, like the way he carries himself and his approach to this character is he's like really digging into the fact that he thinks that uh, that he is he's the one worth rooting for, and maybe there's something to that. I mean, technically he's turning on his friends, but at the end he doesn't actually. You know, he's not the one who guns them down, right? No, he doesn't even lead them. I mean, <laughs> by the time the posse gets there, they're all dead. You could say he sort of trapped them, right? He, yeah, he put them in a place where they. But I do love his final scene, too, where it's just like he's... Yeah, the movie ends with him. Yeah, the movie ends with him. He's like, okay, I guess I'll go with you guys now. <laughs> I mean, the implication is that they're like, this is the, like the, this, there's like a Mexican revolution going on here, right? He's, yeah. he's joining this revolution, sort of. Yeah, I mean, that just his, his way of life, he doesn't really have many options, so might as well go, 
get together with his new gang and, and see what happens, you know? Yeah, his relationship with Pike is so interesting. And, you know, I think one of the weakest parts of the film is the way that it deals with flashbacks. It's like strange that a film that is so elegant in terms of its editorial style is kind of clunky with the way that it has to dole out exposition via flashback. Yeah. But I think that the the flashbacks themselves are really interesting. And it seems like there's a whole nother movie sort of like embedded underneath this one. You know? Yeah. Like they almost look like flashback. Yeah. They almost looks like it's like the movie is sort of like cutting to a different film previously on Wild Bunch or whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, this movie could be the third act of a different story. You yeah. Know? Like sure. I could see this being the, the last hundred pages of a great Western novel. Right. I mean, that's to the credit of, of these actors in the screenplay where it, it they've. <laughs> It feels lived in, right? Like you, you, you get the the fact that these guys have have been around a long time. That there's a history there, and that there's a lot left unsaid. Where's this rank on your all time westerns? It's it's top ten for sure. Okay. Um, maybe not top five, but it's it's top ten. I mean, I really think that this is an absolute masterpiece of of a western, and honestly, like deserves to be considered. I think that the idea of being part of this genre can be a little bit of an albatross to a film. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, and I think that this movie really truly transcends the confines of the genre. Yeah. Um, did I mention True Grit? By the way, did I mention that True Grit was 1969 as well? I feel like I may have glossed over that. I think you did. You did I gloss think over I did. it. Yeah, I got the list in front of me, and I was so busy looking. I was so busy looking ahead. I didn't even mention that True Grit, which John Wayne won an Oscar for. Mm-hmm. Um, the original True Grit, of course, was also 1969. So, like, I really don't think you can overstate how important this year was for this genre. <laughs> Turning point for sure, in addition to, of course, being the same year that something like Easy Rider comes along and changes everything. Mm-hmm. But I also think the movie is a clear reaction to something like Bonnie and Clyde uh, that also had shocking violence that really kind of, like, changed the game. Yeah. Um, which came two years earlier, and uh, and we'll talk about later on in this in this list. But uh, yeah, in terms of favorite westerns, it, it's definitely right up there. I mean, it's obviously very famous for its portrayals of violence and for its editorial. But I think it's an incredibly sophisticated script. I mean, the screenplay was Oscar nominated. It's the only Oscar nomination of Sam Peckinpah's career for co-writing the script, mm-hmm. and um, really deals with the idea of this of this posse sort of like coming to the end of their of their ride and the fact that you have like this struggle between you know this guy who's who used to be a part of the gang who's chasing them down and that the idea of like this sort of push and pull or tension with the idea of betrayal because Mm -hmm. basically uh, William Holden's character feels guilty about the fact that he basically left his friend for dead like he you know he ran away when the law showed up he basically left Robert Ryan behind yeah and the fact that they make an effort to go and not allow Angel, well, they make an effort to try and go <laughs> save Angel, to, to not leave Angel behind at the end. And of course, that something happens that leads to... Uh, it doesn't go be, well. No, it doesn't go well for anybody, including Angel. But at least they make an effort, right? Like yeah. like you said, the suicide mission is going to try to save Angel because these guys can't live with the fact that they basically turn their back on their friend. The whole movie is sort of ominous. Like, like the things are coming to an end. Like... Everyone's sort of resigned to the fact that this is this is almost over for them, and then, and then it goes that way. I mean, it's a very it's very existential at times, and sort of poetic and and and, and thoughtful. I, I I hadn't seen this probably for a decade um, until I watched it a few days back. Yeah, I was just super impressed by by the whole thing. You know, the violence is sort of stunning to begin with, and it's yeah. it, it verges on being sort of comical, just how how quickly. It, 
rapid it is and how, how many just gunshots are going off in such yeah. a short amount of time. Um, but once you get into the rhythm of it, it's a, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a visceral stirring piece of work. So This might be apocryphal, but supposedly more blank rounds were discharged during the production uh, of the film than there were live rounds fired during the Mexican Revolution. In oh, 1916, God. so uh, <laughs> apparently 90,000 rounds of blanks were were uh, discharged in the making of the Wild Bunch. Are you excited for a Wild Bunch uh, remake? Yeah, I was reading about that a little bit. I would have been excited back when Tony Scott was still alive because he was apparently in charge of this. Uh, yeah. Not super excited now. It sounds like it's going to be some sort of drug cartel thing. In modern times, it's going to be it's going to be a Sicario wannabe. It sounds like. Yeah, I don't know about that. I really I mean I really think that like this is something that was very specific to a time and place and filmmaker and genre and I don't really like the idea of reappropriating it um, but I mean I, I think it's such an interesting time capsule you know this obviously very specific time in the late 1960s but also in the context of a list like this that a, that a movie like this still holds up so well where uh, where do you think it belongs on this top 100 list you think it's in the right place yeah it's it's tough because it's definitely you know it, it's not a flawless film there is issues like I said I think that the flashbacks are kind of clunky it's also maybe the most amount of disproportionate laughter in any film I've ever seen. <laughs> like they're these guys these guys are constantly just like erupting yeah. into laughter that it seems very disproportionate to whatever's going on. And I, I was watching it the other day thinking to myself, like, why is there why are they laughing so much? And even during at the end when they sort of like they do the little greatest hits of all the different members of the bunch. Yeah. They kind of superimpose it. They they specifically show them all laughing, right? Yeah. Beyond the grave. And I was like, God, why are they so obsessed with laughter? And I have to imagine it must be some sort of move on Peckinpah's part to kind of like temper the darkness a little bit, right? Like temper the violence of it all that like these guys do have a sense of humor and they enjoy each other's company and occasionally they will just erupt into laughter, even though whatever's going on is not actually that funny. Yeah, you have to, yeah, it can't be too dark and I think it, it lets them a little levity here and there can't uh, can't hurt but i did notice that too i did write that down how uh, how loud their laughter was and how sort of unexpected it was but i don't know i i, I guess it sort of releases the tension a little bit which is necessary you know yeah. like there is there is crazy dark things going on in this movie like you know lots and lots of lots of prostitution happening like and apparently many of the women who were on screen as prostitutes were actually pros who were hired in Mexico on <laughs> like not actresses. Peckinpah was very specific about that. But it, it is, yeah, it is really interesting. Like it's it's a hard film to recommend to people because it is so much of it is gonna be off putting. It would be interesting to look through this AFI list and see how many of the films on it are rated R or the kinds yeah. of films that you couldn't watch with a you know, with mixed company. And this sure. has to be among this along with, you know, your pulp fictions and your good fellows or even your un- forgivens and your clockwork oranges definitely things that um you know there needs to be a little bit of a disclaimer beforehand right yes it's not a it's not a feel-good sunday night movie with the family no i mean it, it is one of the most famous opening sequences in uh, cinematic history which is a bunch of children lowering a scorpion into a pit full of these fire ants right yeah it's a very disturbing way to it's start the movie very very disturbing opening shot yeah you know it's evocative but it's just it's something you're not used to seeing in a film from this era the kids are having a great time, too. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that I mentioned it at the top of this conversation. And I think the fact that the the film spends so much time with children or focusing on children, there's no main, you know, the, none of the children have any dialogue or anything. Yeah. But it spends a lot of time zooming in, focusing on their faces during these moments of, you know, horrible violence that um, mm-hmm. it's clearly fascinated with the idea of some sort of loss of innocence, right? 
Oh, for sure. Yeah, desensitized to violence, knowing violence early on in life begets violence later on in life. I think that was what Peck and Pollard talked about in, in different interviews, and it makes a lot of sense uh, watching the movie through that through that lens. A friend and a um, you know former professor of mine, uh, Nick Griffin, who wrote amongst other things, he co-wrote Matchstick Men with his brother Ted Griffin. He considers this to be one of the best screenplays of all time his favorite quote from the film is when william holden walks into the brothel and he sees the the gorch brothers there ben johnson and warren oates and he just looks at both of them and they're all just sort of like drunk and sweaty and and they look back at him and he just says let's go mm-hmm. and they all get it yeah. exactly like they and yeah, i think i think uh warren oates even looks over and says yeah why not because it's like yeah but we all know it's time right and he just uh nick makes the good point just like you can't make a better point in that sequence than just those two words like it was yeah. just like those two words tell you everything you need to know about where these characters are and where they're going to have to go in the next you know in the last 10 minutes of this movie it's these are not the kind of people who are going to deliberate intensely no. over you know over the course of half an hour it's uh it's, it's uh, simple i don't know if i ever actually answered your question i think i would put this a little higher because i do really consider this to be an incredible masterpiece but mostly i'm just super happy that it's on the list at all i, I think it, it can be a maybe a potentially very alienating film and i just it warms my heart that the movie is so widely considered to be required viewing you know it's in the national film registry and everything so yeah um would i put it higher than butch casting and the sundance kid which i think is like the obvious thing you have to kind of like compare it to you know does come higher on this list i don't know i'll have to give it some thought that's coming up pretty soon though that's coming up in what five or six movies from now yeah, so it's six away so it's uh yeah it's not not that far ahead of it i think it's an incredible double feature uh and i think that they really do need to be sort of discussed in the same conversation but put a gun to my head i <laughs> i think i i think i go with the wild bunch over butch casty personally all right. but maybe i'll reconsider when we rewatch uh, butch casty here in the next couple months all right well that's been afi top 100 list number 79 uh we'll be back next time with uh 1936 modern times you excited for that matt i was i was just gonna keep my mouth closed and make a uh, charlie chaplin pun but i think <laughs> i was afraid you were gonna be like are you still there something go wrong did skype drop out well we'll be uh, chaplin centric next time so till next time say goodbye man adios